There are so many elections tomorrow, we just won't have time to cover them all on tonight's show. And that means that if you have a particular interest in who will become the Police and Crime Commissioner for West Mercia or Mayor of Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, I have to apologise in advance. However, we will be previewing all the big competitive elections that matter most. And given this is Keir Starmer's first big electoral test as Labour leader, we'll be focusing on those contests which might give us a key insight into where he's taken the party since gaining power. They are, of course, also the first big elections we've had um, since both Brexit was done and the COVID pandemic. So uh, lots up in the air right now. Um, I'm, of course, delighted to be joined by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, do you have your popcorn ready for the election? Total showdown we're about to witness tomorrow. <laughs> How different from a year ago or two years ago, where I would be following every single candidate, every single move, every single account. Um, but it just goes to show that there's nothing to really inspire voting. We're also joined um, by Owen Jones, who is potentially, are you more excited about voting than either of us, Owen? So tomorrow I've got uh, to vote and I've got a dentist appointment so I'm going to get the painful experience out of the way and then go to the dentist <laughs> hey. Owen Jones if you watch um, his brilliant YouTube channel you know Will has, has recently been in Hartlepool so we are going to be asking Owen about Hartlepool as well as all, all the other elections in England and we're going to talk about Scotland towards the end of the show I've got a great guest um, for that segment my apologies in advance because whilst the Welsh elections really do matter um, we haven't got a guest on that tonight well we definitely will on either Friday or Monday so that we can go into the nitty-gritty um, of the results, even if my preview is going to be briefer um, than I'd probably like it to be this evening. Now, as our particular interest on tonight's show is what these elections will mean for Keir Starmer, we're going to start with the one election to Westminster taking place tomorrow. That's the by-election in Hartlepool. Now, this is a seat in the so-called Red Wall, so those seats that voted Brexit but traditionally voted Labour. Now, it was held by Labour in 2017 and 2019, as it has been since the seat's creation in the 1970s. Um, let's take a look at the election results in 2019, so we know what we're comparing tomorrow's results to. Um, so in 2019, Labour won with 37% of the votes. It was a bit of a freeway marginal. You can see that there both the Conservatives and the Brexit Party did reasonably well. Um, now, given Starmer's key pitch to become Labour leader was that he was more electable than Corbyn, and that his key strategy since becoming leader has seemed to be to try to appeal to socially conservative voters in the Red Bull so that he can win back um, those seats lost in 2019. We might think this is a real bellwether for Starmer's leadership. This is showing us whether or not his strategy is working. Um, the polls at the moment suggest it's not. They suggest that Labour might be in for a very rough ride. So the latest polling from Servation has the Conservatives on 50%, um, with Labour on 33%. Labour are down nine points since since last polled three weeks earlier. Now, the Tories have remained relatively steady. They've just moved up one percentage point since that poll three weeks before. Um, Owen, I want to go to you on this because you've just been there on the ground. What was the impression you got? Obviously, I mean, everyone always says constituency polls aren't particularly reliable because it's harder to properly weight everyone. Did you get the sense that the Tories were going to stomp home to victory? 
I think it's looking pretty good for them. I mean, I, I think there's a few things at play because I, you know, I think there is this kind of often southern, let's go in a safari round the north. And, you know, it's grim up north. These are left behind post-industrial towns. It's more complicated than that. You know, this was a town which heavily voted, as we know, for leave. It was one of the most pro-leave areas of the country. The Tories have a clear message there. We got Brexit done. But they also have a clear message of strategic investment. The Teesside mayor is Ben Houchin, who is extremely popular. I met people who, frankly, people are going to vote Labour in the by-election who voted for him to be mayor. Um, and you can see how he kind of sums up the new Tory uh, that exists, which is not the Osborne Cameron Tories that a lot of us, you know, a lot of people came into politics um, on the new left, the young left in this country, the just, you know, slash and burn austerity economics of of, of Osborne and, and Cameron. Um, you know, this was a guy who campaigned on bringing the local airport into public ownership um, and who boasts that his relationship with the Conservative government means that he can get the taps to be turned on. So the conservative message is vote for us and we'll turn the taps on in your area. And that's a very effective message, particularly when Labour doesn't seem to be in the runnings to form a government for a very long time. But also the, the fact is that's a vision, which is we're going to turn on the taps for your town uh, through our uh, through conservative mayors and conservative MPs and their relationship with government. Um, Brexit. And, and Labour just don't have a vision. There's no vision. No one privately uh, within the Labour Party, however they voted in the leadership election, believes in any good faith that Labour has a clear vision. How do you mobilise people within that context when the Tories have a very clear message, even though their candidate is very bad, a poor candidate, not local, uh, spent a lot of time out in the Cayman Islands, uh, which is a tax haven, though we don't know about her own tax dealings. Uh, and Labour just don't have a clear cut through vision that can mobilise people to come out and vote. So what I did meet was people with that kind of lifelong residual, well, not residual, there's a strong Labour loyalty that exists in lots of these communities that are voted for Labour. And they'll say to you, oh, Labour stand for the, you know, for the working man, the working person. That kind of class conscious uh, connection to the Labour Party still exists in a lot of these communities, but it's been heavily eroded. And the other factor is, Home ownership is actually very high in these areas compared to a lot of urban areas. Um, it's older homeowners, often from working class backgrounds, whilst younger people who are now caught the core vote of the Labour Party are emptied out of places like Hartlepool because of regional inequality. Uh, they take their Labour votes. Younger people from Hartlepool are voting for Labour in higher numbers than they've ever done, but they're taking them out often. Uh, to safe Labour seats, which is why you end up with Labour in the last election getting more votes than 2015 or 2010, but way less seats. Because a lot of those votes from younger people in places like Hartlepool are taken out because there aren't the jobs there. And the reason Labour lacks a very convincing excuse this time round is in a by-election, oppositions do better than general elections. That's the rule, because you're not thinking about who forms the government. You've got you know, you're, you're, you're voting on other grounds. Uh, Labour has a very good get out the vote uh, campaign compared to the Tories traditionally. The pandemic complicates that. So the fact, you know, that by-elections only been lost by the opposition twice in the last 50 years to the government, and we're even talking about it, whether or not it happens in Hartlepool, not good. Let's have a look at Keir Starmer, who is most certainly trying to dampen expectations, basically trying to, to lower expectations about um, the result here. And I think, quite frankly, 
rewrite history. Here he is speaking to Sky. I am um, clear that my job as leader of the Labour Party is to rebuild the Labour Party from where we were in December 2019 with the worst result since 1935 into a position where we can win the next general election. That is a mountain to climb. We are climbing um, that mountain. My job is to make it clear that the priorities of the Labour Party under my leadership yeah. are the priorities of the British people and that we will face... Look, I, I, for, for, forgive me for jumping in. I know we're really tight for time, but if you say you're taking responsibility, what does that mean if it doesn't work out the way you want by Friday morning? Uh, we are fighting for every vote into this um, election on Thursday, earning every vote. That's why I'm out um, pretty well every hour uh, of daylight fighting for those votes alongside the team that we've got. We'll go into Thursday with a very positive message about the change that we want to make for our country for the better and indicating that this is the first step towards that change. The job of rebuilding the Labour Party was never going to be completed in a year or so. I don't think anybody realistically um, thought that, but these are a very, very important set of elections for us. So what's ridiculous about that, as Owen said, is he's talking about rebuilding the Labour Party when this is a seat that Labour won in the last general election. So if we lose this, this is going backwards. I want to take a look at a tweet from John Rentor, who is an arch Blairite, chief political commentator at The Independent. And he, I think, best summarised the Starmerite argument as to why it's no big deal if Labour do lose Hartlepool. So he tweeted the results from 2019, which, um, as I've shown you already, um, shows that Labour win, but the, the Conservatives and the Brexit Party both do quite well. It's a freeway um, marginal. And he's suggesting that given um, the Brexit Party have collapsed at this general election, it's no surprise that the Labour Party are going to lose because he's assuming that all those Brexit Party votes will go to the Conservative Party. So he's essentially saying that without the Brexit Party, Labour would have lost in 2019 anyway. Now, that would be a reasonable argument. You know, it's, it's not a ridiculous thing to say, but it is completely ahistorical because it does um, ignore 2015 and 2017. As Owen said before, in 2015, this was also a freeway marginal. We can get you up the results here. Um, so then Labour got 35%, UKIP got 28% and the Conservatives got 20%. Now John Rental could have easily tweeted in 2017, how could anyone possibly think Labour would hold this given that the UKIP vote has collapsed? What did happen? The UKIP vote collapsed and Labour increased their vote share by a lot more than the Conservatives. Labour increased their vote share by 16% when UKIP collapsed. Um, so the idea that Labour can't win UKIP voters is or this time around Brexit party voters, is ridiculous. That's not necessarily a long-term secular trend. That's about the political decisions that have been made in the party. I, to be honest, think that's as much about backing a second referendum in 2019 as I do think it's about the flaws of Keir Starmer or any local candidate. But it's clearly the fault of political strategies, which, I mean, in both of those cases, have a lot to do with Keir Starmer. Dahlia, I want to bring you in on this question and specifically to speak about this phenomenon that we're seeing from from centrists, where they're trying to have it both ways, where they say if Starmer wins, brilliant, he's a hero, he's making the Labour Party electable again. And if Starmer loses seats with Jeremy Corbyn won, then that's just the shadow of Corbyn still haunting the Labour Party and forcing them to lose seats that he won. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but they're still saying it. I mean, I think this constant blaming of these poor results on the last leadership is going to really great on the public because it just sounds like an excuse. It sounds like excuses for lack of work, for lack of passion, for lack of vision, um, especially because, you know, 
Labour was the Labour Party was already in in crisis, in decline before Corbyn ever came anywhere near the leadership, or any of Corbyn's allies came anywhere near the leadership. You know, the party was not successful under Gordon Brown and under Ed Miliband. In fact, 2017 almost bucked that trend. Right, it was a one moment where we saw an actual breath of of life in this thing that looked like it was dead. Um, and instead of trying to understand, you know, okay, how did that happen? Why was that the case? Um, and you know what was different in 2017 compared to elections before and after 2017, and scale upwards. We're instead seeing the current leadership being much more invested in attacking its base, and you know than actually working for its base and creating new bases, which I think is actually a really important part of Labour strategy going forward, or what should be Labour strategy going forward. Um, and, you know, working to win, being a party that looks like it has a vision to govern with. And we know that that has to involve things like a real alternative vision. It has to involve deep community organising, care provision, political education, a cohesive media strategy that reckons with the fact that our media is dominated by Murdoch press and we need to have a strategy of how to deal with that. It has to involve the energizing of new bases, bases that have been excluded from politics and the exclusion and whose exclusion from politics is entrenched by this very um, political culture of focus grouping um, that we see represented um, by Keir Starmer. And I think that it's, this is especially true because one of the reasons I think we're seeing this backlash, you know, there are many reasons. I think there's many overlapping, intersecting things that have come together in this particular moment to see what feels like an unstoppable decline in, in these kind of stronghold seats. Um, but one thing that I think we can all say is definitely true is that since the idea that, you know, of a red wall even became solidified, we have seen this taking for granted of these seats in the North and in the Midlands, of, of MPs that have nothing to do with the, with the community being parachuted in as personal favours or, you know, as, as, as step, just mere stepping stones to something, to a bigger position in the party. And frankly, MPs just not pulling their weight, um, you know, as local MPs. And then you have the position on the second referendum, which I think in the last election was for many voters a kind of nail in the coffin. Um, when it comes to feeling that, you know, the Labour Party does not, the, the Labour Party takes them for granted and doesn't listen to them. But, you know, that explanation also has its limitations because I think we see really similar dynamics in London, you know, um, of ineffective local MPs of the central Labour Party that has often conceded on things that really matter to Labour voters in London, young multiracial Labour voters in London. And we haven't seen this shift. Um, I wonder if, you know, that's because there hasn't been a competitor. I wonder if, you know, a young people's party in London galvanised around a particular issue similarly to, to Brexit, you know, like, I don't know, universal basic income or, or universal housing would have a similar effect in London. But I think that one thing that is really important here is also that the left needs to take accountability here. I think, you know, we can point to the failures of the Central Labour Party. That is absolutely true. And they are accountable for this poor performance. Uh, but we also need to have a really serious think as the left, how we collectively exercise power to mitigate the harms of a conservative government and how we can win in light of the fact that the Labour Party leadership has no interest in listening to us. Um, you know, I don't know if that looks like revisiting our strategy within the party. I don't know if it um, 
if it involves uh, setting up a new party, building union, community movements that can exercise power on specific issues. But I think it's 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 really poor form that despite all of these institutions that were built under Corbynism, we as you know lefty voters don't have a cohesive strategy of how we're going to demonstrate our power in this election. Like I don't actually care who I vote who I vote for. I don't care if I vote green or if I vote just for specific Labour Party people who who are on you know who are on our side or, or what it looks like. I just care that we have this like collective exercising of power so that we can point to the results and say, this is what we as a collective did, and this is the demonstration of our electoral power and why we are a force to be reckoned with. And I think that's really important as well to think about how in the wake of no longer having the Labour Party, where is our site of discipline and our site of accountability um, for really knowing for really knowing how we want to exercise that power in, in this particular moment. So I think that, you know, these excuses are just going to feed into the idea that people have that Keir Starmer is a man without a vision, he's a man without commitment, that he just sort of says what he needs to say to get by in the moment. Um, so it's not going to do Labour any favours, but I think we in the left need to really think about what it means for us to exercise power. It needs to be collective. That's very well put. Got a couple more data points. I'm going to go through very quickly for Hartlepool before we move on to some of the other contests. Um, so first of all is a story in The Guardian. This was leaked internal polling from the Labour Party, which showed that only 40% of previous Labour voters pledged um, to back Paul Williams in the by-election. So the previous Labour voters, WhatsApp's referring to this is sort of canvassing returns. So when you're you're canvassing doorsteps for a political party, you have on there written, have they voted Labour recently? They're saying when we knock on people who voted Labour recently, only 40% of them say they'll vote Labour this time. Previous Labour voters, they might also not have voted Labour in, in 2019. Um, final bit of data from Hartley Pool, potentially the most interesting, actually. This is also from Servation, and it is showing you the the respective popularity of Boris Johnson and, and Keir Starmer, and it's not very good for Labour. So Boris Johnson is 51% of people have a favourable attitude of him in Hartlepool, and 28% unfavourable. And for Keir Starmer, only 22% have a favourable attitude of him in Hartlepool, and 40% have an unfavourable attitude, which means that Boris Johnson has a net favourability rating of plus 23, and Keir Starmer has a net favourability rating of minus 18. A brief word of warning, this data came in um, before the Flatgate controversy blew up. There's been some national polling that suggested this has made a slight dent um, in Boris Johnson's popularity, but those are still quite phenomenal numbers. Um, Owen, we need to move on to the Metro mayors, but I just want to know very quickly from you, speaking to people in Hartlepool, I actually want to focus on the popularity of Boris Johnson as much as the unpopularity of Keir Starmer, because those are phenomenal figures for someone who has just overseen you know, the deaths of 140,000 people in a pandemic. Where is this enthusiasm coming from? Labour failed to pin the pandemic on Boris Johnson and the government uh, has a lot to do with it. And um, I think because what Labour's position during the pandemic was is focus groups of people, particularly who voted Conservative in 2019, tell us don't play politics with the pandemic. Um, and I'm sure that's what the Tories were told in focus groups during the financial crash. And the Tories could have stuck to what the focus groups told them, but they didn't do that. They said, we're in this mess because Labour spent too much money and they didn't fix the roof while the sun was shining. And then after several months, focus groups were repeating that back to them. Keir Starmer's team did not do that. They listened to the focus groups, particularly of that subset of voters, saying, don't play politics with the pandemic. 
And therefore, they didn't develop a clear narrative of why we ended up with one of the worst handlings of pandemic on earth. So a lot of people concluded with the government, wouldn't want to be in their shoes. Oh, they had a terrible hand. I'm sure they made mistakes. But who wouldn't uh, in those circumstances? I don't think Labour would have done much better. They see Labour as opportunistic. The Captain Hindsight thing clearly has cut through. Uh, and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that as Fraser Nelson, who I don't normally quote, the editor of the Right Wing Spectator said, Labour strategy has been to work out where the Tories end up and then get there a little bit quicker. Um, so I think that's why his popularity hasn't been dented by the pandemic when it clearly should have done, given one in every 433 people have died. And I think Brexit, um, I think just a basic fact that his personality cuts through in contrast to the Labour leader. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't downplay that. He's associated with successes as local people see it with Ben Houchin, the local metro mayor, because while councils have been imposing cuts, 50% cuts from central government, many of them Labour councils, Hartlepool Council was a Labour council for a long time, the metro mayors have been given money to splash. And so I think Boris Johnson and the Conservatives are associated now with Ben Houchin's success and that's turning on the taps and investing, which is scrubbing away the memory of austerity, which was clearly very unpopular. So I think all of those factors are at play with Boris Johnson in places like Hartlepool. The next big test for Starmer will be in the various Metro Mayor races. Now, Metro Mayors um, are a fairly recent creation. Now, what they are is they're elected mayoralties to oversee a number of contiguous towns um, or cities. So they're trying to put together these urban regions metropolitan regions which can have some integrated policy especially on things like investment and transport which will hopefully bring about development and that's why they brought in um, these metro mayors across um, the country across across England. Um, now the ones which are going to really matter tomorrow um, so first of all I want to go to Tees Valley um, so the Tees Valley metro region contains Darlington, Hartlepool, Middlesbrough, Redcar and Cleveland and Stockton on Tees. Now, as Owen was just mentioning, their incumbent is called Ben Houchin. Um, but the results in 2017 were very, very close. So Ben Houchin won by a sliver. Um, in 2017, he beat Sue Jeffrey to the seat by 51.1% to 48.9%. So super close, almost as close as you can get. Um, it's also a place that presumably if Keir Starmer wants to win back the red wall and he wants to improve on on how Labour performed in, in 2017, which were, which were very bad elections actually, that was before um, Labour regained momentum during the general election campaign, he'd be hoping to overthrow, to overturn such a small margin. In fact, the polling suggests the opposite is happening. So a poll um, with opinion has Hoochin on 63% with Labour on only 37%. So that's a big swing in the direction of the incumbent. Um, Owen, you, you've mentioned Ben Houchin a, a fair few times already. Um, obviously, people in Hartlepool you were speaking to were quite enthusiastic about the guy. I suppose to make this very concrete, what are some of the examples of what he's done? You know, when people were saying, I like this guy because, was there a specific, I like this guy because I know there's a free, well, they're going to get a free port after Brexit. Did he nationalise an airport? Am I getting this right? What, what has he done that people really like? I know it sounds odd to say, but he did campaign and bringing the local airport into public ownership, which they have done. It has cut through. Look, the free, the benefits of Freeport are woefully overstated, as uh, critics rightfully put it. Basically, they, you get tax reliefs imposed locally to attract jobs, uh, but that just 
takes it away from other areas of the country. So it doesn't actually, if you, if you want to level up, that's that's clearly not the way you do it at all. And and they have secured investment um, from from the government on top of that. I, I think what I'd say is, if Labour had won that, which they narrowly lost in 2017, I think they'd have a popular incumbency factor now because they would be associated with investment in a way that councils are associated with cuts. So I think if you have years of austerity under a Conservative government, which we had, um, including with local councils who are then doling out, having to choose what to cut back, so then often Labour councils are associated with cuts, if you then get mayoralties on top of them who are associated with splashing the cash, then the incumbent does get a popular boost. And the argument that they're, they're able to do in that area is to say, you voted for a Conservative, a Conservative works better with the government because they're in the same party, and therefore they're better placed to get concessions and the Labour government's not on the offing anyway. That's why he's cut through. And that's why, um, you know, he's not, he's associated with, bizarrely, reversing the tide of austerity in the area. And I mean, there is also the national factors, because most of those constituent parts of Tees Valley, they switched to the Conservatives in the 2019 election, heavily Brexit voting areas, so that the Tories have risen in stature and, and the Labour Party have declined. So um, potentially that alongside the incumbency factor you're talking about is has been pretty significant there. Also, um, it seems it's been significant in the West Midlands. Um, the West Midlands mayoralty, that includes Birmingham, Coventry, Dudley, Sandwell, Solihull, Walsall and Wolverhampton. Um, the results in 2017 were even closer than they were in Tees Valley. So they're the Conservatives won with Andy Street by 50.4% um, to 49.6% 49 um, for Labour's Sean Simon. So super, super close. Um, and there were suggestions within the Starmer team that this is the kind of seat they did want to win back. So Sebastian Payne in the FT um, had some interesting commentary on why this should be seen as a pretty crucial race. This was an article this morning, I think. Um, so Sebastian Payne wrote, the West Midlands is Britain's closest region to, to a US swing state. Electoral dom dominance has gone between Labour and the Tories, depending on whose national fortunes are up. Street squeaked in as mayor in 2017, thanks to his business record and moderate centre-right politics. We're saying this is a big big swing seat is what you'd call in America a purple state. Um, here it, it tends to go to whichever um, party is going to win the general election that year. Um, later in the piece, he writes, when Keir Starmer was elected Labour leader last year, one of his close allies told me the West Midlands would be our first step back to electability and proof that Labour can win elections again. And he writes, if Street wins on Thursday, it will be proof that the pandemic has done little to dent the Tories' standing and will suggest that Labour's troubles are deeper than just the unpopularity of its last leader and stance on Brexit. Um, I'm not actually sure why he's saying if they lose, it's it must be more than their stance on Brexit, because if they lose, you could also say that compounds the fact that the stance on Brexit is, is what lost them. This is, again, a heavily leave um, voting region. Again, this is looking bad for Labour, if you believe opinion. So opinion suggest um, that in fact, this time around, the Conservatives could win in the first round with 54% in the first round to Labour's 37% and 59% in the second round to Labour's 41%. Now remember, this was essentially 50-50 four years ago. So this is um, a big improvement for the Conservatives 
again, could be the incumbency effect, could be that Labour are more associated with Remain than they were in 2017 since they went on to back that second referendum, which was so catastrophic in 2019, at least in those particular regions. Let's go straight on to some of those metro mayor regions where there's going to be good news for Labour, we can presume, unless there's a, a massive um, upset. We expect Labour to comfortably hold London. And the YouGov polling for London suggests that, or the latest actually, this is a bit down on what it was. Previously, we were wondering if Sadiq Khan was going to win on the first round. Obviously, that's still possible. These are all polls. Um, but the current polling um, is suggesting that in the first round, he'll get 43% um, to the Tories, 31%. That's Sean Bailey as their candidate, obviously. And in the second round, 59 to 41, um, Sadiq Khan will be expecting a big win. We can look very quickly, actually, at what the results were in 2016. So you have something to compare this to. In 2016, Sadiq Khan won on the second round with 56.8% compared to the Tories' 43.2%. percent you remember that Zach Goldsmith ran a pretty horrible Islamophobic campaign. Um, Sadiq Khan, in my mind, has been a little bit disappointing as mayor, but I mean, he doesn't need to worry when it comes to the electorate, does it? No, I mean, I think their camp is slightly concerned about the issue of turnout. I mean, they can't be worried in any meaningful way because they're going to win. Uh, though that's not a message they want people to hear because I well, I think they'd quite like to win on the first round. Um, they got a huge margin in 2016, but they didn't actually quite win on the first round of, of the vote. And I think they're worried that people think it's in the bag because people, because Sean Bailey's a joke candidate. I mean, let's just be honest. He's ludicrous. He's run a textbook example of how not to run a campaign. Uh, I mean, he's got enough baggage to sink a, an ocean liner. But so, so I think they they think people will think, well, it's it's in the bag. They, they may well also, uh, though they haven't said this, uh, worry that the lack of general popularity of the Labour Party will discourage people from coming out and voting, that there will be younger people in particular more likely to vote for the Greens in, in protest at the national Labour leadership, all of that is possible, but they're going to clearly win it, probably by a bigger margin than they did back in 2016. Um, but there is, for example, one reason they might not win in the first round is a YouTube uh, prankster who pranked uh, me last week by beginning the interview with a doppelganger. Turned out not to be him. Um, and he's got 5% of the vote, particularly from younger people. So one of the reasons that he can't, may not win the first round is because of a YouTube prank prankster rather than Sean Bailey. I suppose we could we could tell a story where that's because of deep sociological trends in London. I don't think we won't weave that story right now when it comes to the prankster. I mean, obviously, the the story as to why Sadiq Khan is doing very well, that is deeply sociological. London's now a red city. Lots of renters also didn't vote for Brexit. Of course, Manchester and Liverpool Metro mayoralties are also having elections tomorrow. And um, we're not going to discuss those in too much detail because they are even more certain to remain in Labour hands than than London is. They are not competitive races. One more um, metro mayor region which should go well for Labour is newly created, didn't exist um, well until tomorrow, <laughs> doesn't exist until tomorrow. Uh, that's the West Yorkshire mayoralty. Um, so this is a metro region um, that, as I say, was just created. It includes um, Leeds as the biggest population centre that's part of it, then Bradford, Calderdale, Kirklees and Wakefield. Now, this is expected to go to Labour's Tracy Brabin, um, former TV star. Um, Labour won by six points in the region in 2019. So this is one of those parts of the country where even though on aggregate it was Brexit voting, Labour does still 
um, have a lead. Obviously, you know, lots of big cities there with lots of renters, ethnic minorities, and and young people. So it's still um, labour territory. Some of those, you know, the, the smaller, less densely populated parts of that region went Tory in, in 2019, including Wakefield. Super quickly now, we're going to go to the west of England. This is the one that people think could um, be a swing one. This is the only one I've I've really seen when people think this this could really be in play. And Labour here are hoping to take the seat from the Conservatives in 2017. Um, this seat, which includes Bath um, and North East Somerset, Bristol and South Gloucestershire, um, was won by the Conservatives on the second round with 51.6%. Labour had 48.4% um, in this election. Now, these elections will be held at the same time as Bristol City Mayor. Quite confusing. You have a mayor for, for the region that Bristol is in and for Bristol City. Bristol City Mayor Marvin Rees, quite popular and also generally considered to be more important than this this metro mayor. Labour are hoping that turnout for that election will boost um, Labour over the edge when it comes to the west of England metro region. Marvin Rees, is, that's not going to be a particularly competitive race. Um, no one's suggesting he could lose. To wrap up the story in England, um, 143 councils in England have seats up for election. Um, that's going to be around 4,500 councillors. There's also 35 police and crime commissioners in England and four in Wales. And then there's the London Assembly. And we're going to talk about Scotland and Wales later in the show. Um, I want to talk about some broader issues um, when it comes to the Labour Party now and why. I mean, the narrative basically now is about, oh, we're expecting a disappointment. Obviously, we can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow. But if you're looking at the way politicians are talking about this, the way Keir Starmer's talking about this, they're like, prepare for a disappointment. The narrative right now is that the the national elections that are happening on Thursday will be a disappointing set of elections for Labour. Now, Keir Starmer has been pretty clear when he's appeared on television. The fault is um, the ghost of Jeremy Corbyn, principally, he's saying he's bringing down the Labour vote, even in seats that Jeremy Corbyn won. And he's saying it's because the vaccine rollout was successful. That's the official story. But increasing numbers of people, both on the left and now some on the centre, are saying that failure, so the failure to do particularly well um, in those elections, if it happens, will have a different cause. And that's the lack of any clear vision for the party and any vision for the country. Um, so to start off this conversation, we're going to give you an example of uh, a Labour candidate really failing to express a vision for the country or the party. This is Paul Williams, the candidate for Hartlepool, who struggled to tell Owen Jones what Labour stood for. What is Labour's vision for the country now? What does Labour stand for? Don't say fairness and everything being nice and mother had an apple pie. What's it concretely? What's the vision? People in this election aren't talking though about about Labour's vision for the country. They're talking about Labour's vision for Hartlepool. Well, it's both. Um, but, okay, what's Labour's vision for Hartlepool? That's okay. unique and different oh, and yeah. distinct. Yeah, so, um, so the best companies come to Hartlepool to provide the best jobs because we have the best trained people. The Tories disagree with that. Because we've invested in people right from the start of life. And you make that difference to children. So by the time they start school, they, they, they're able, they're not behind their peers. They can read. Um, they can, um, you then have small class sizes in, um, and, and really good, um, 
you know, my, my kids are at primary school and they say that, you know, the class sizes are large, the, the head teacher talks to me about um, have cuts in schools and having to reduce teaching assistance, so you, you help the most vulnerable children, you help children with special educational needs, and when kids are, you know, um, um, aren't coming to school, you, you, you send out support workers to find out what's going in the household and you help people to get to a point where they can be, have really great skills, really great training and then employers come to you, not because you've got the lowest taxes, okay. because you've got the best people. There's, there's some direct things. That's but you what, don't, you, that's you, you don't know politics. What, but do you, I'm genuinely interested. Do you know what the Labour vision for the country is? Are you asking what? what uh, no, in the yeah, country. In the country. Um, what's well, Labour vision for the country? Let's to, to replicate that. And, and you start the best place for a child to be born and the best that sounded like he was asking why he was found in the back of a taxi with ketamine on his collar and a dildo in his hand. It seemed like that was a really hard, hostile question. He was really squirming. You asked him quite a basic question, Owen. What was going on? Was that as uncomfortable as it looked? <laughs> um, it was quite a long interview and we, we didn't include various sections uh, where, where we asked uh, other, other questions with similar results. I should say I he think... hasn't been found in the back of a taxi with ketamine on his collar and a dildo. I think for reasons of libel, we need to clarify that absolutely clearly hasn't I was saying that it was like as if he was answering a question. Yeah, yeah, very good. Just to avoid a protracted uh, lawsuit and exchange of <laughs> legal letters, that, that hasn't happened. Um, yeah, I, I mean, look, I think generous to the local Labour candidate, whoever they are, they're going to struggle to articulate what Labour's vision is for a very simple and straightforward reason, which is Labour does not have a vision. They don't have any idea what they want to do with political power uh, whatsoever. And the fact is the Tories do have a clear vision. They have a vision of nationalist populism, uh, which is via their interpretation of Brexit, uh, which is wedded to strategic investment, uh, particularly in areas which are popular uh, as they see it, um, um, health, education and police. Those are the three big things they went on in the election and targeted investment in communities that they hold or are seeking to gain. And that vision is cutting through and it is effective, particularly amongst older white homeowners in communities which are often called and lumped together and homogenized as the so-called Red Wall. Uh, and that's the voter coalition that they have sought and now are seeking to cement. The problem Labour have is Starmer's team uh, waltzed into that operation, it, believing that all that was needed was for the grown-ups, as they see it, to come back in the room uh, the, of politics, uh, that self-evidently they were more competent and able, I'm explaining their narrative here, by the way, uh, than their predecessors, who were self-evidently, as they see it, shambolic, um, and that they had a candidate, Keir Starmer, who didn't have baggage in the same way, uh, who was a knight of the realm, who had run, who'd been a prosecutor against criminals, um, and therefore he would attract back socially conservative voters in particular that Labour lost. And that has not worked at all. One of the reasons is a lot of the people around Keir Starmer, uh, they're basically on safari. They don't understand the communities they're talking about. They didn't grow up in them. They know almost nothing about them. Uh, and they're trying to caricature and cosplay uh, the sorts of uh, voters who live there through focus groups where they repeat back the messages that they get without coming up with their own clear or distinct uh, message. Um, and that, come, that looks inauthentic to lots of people, the whole you know, Keir Starmer going around, always a full pint, not 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 entirely convincing, plus flags. Uh, and, and that's an attempt, uh, as they, they think, if they tick those boxes, 
uh, th then they will attract those voters back. What they don't have, Labour did have a clear vision in 2017, which was to redistribute wealth and power from the top to everybody else, for the many, not the few. Of course, that vision then got worn down very significantly by the Brexit trauma and drama, which is why in 2019, Labour didn't have a clear vision and kept chopping and changing its slogans throughout the uh, election because they didn't know how to deal with how Brexit polarised their voter coalition. But in, in the aftermath of Brexit, um, Labour don't have that vision. Now, one of the excuses they have is the pandemic, but actually that would have been, an, a, you know, that national emergency is an, is an opportunity to showcase a vision. Uh, look at World War II. Winston Churchill should have won the 1945 election by a landslide. He was extremely popular Winston Churchill in 1945, but Labour crafted a vision in 1945 of once we win the war, we've got to win the peace. And we're best placed to secure that peace by addressing the injustices that have been exacerbated and exposed by the war. And that's what they could have done with the pandemic, and they didn't. And they didn't pin responsibility on the government, who then people now feel resigned as thinking, well, they could have made, done things better, that Labour would not have done a better job because they haven't offered a narrative of what they would have done better that is convincing or compelling. The problem we have now with, with the Labour leadership and the Labour vision and the Labour strategy is they're not winning back the voters Labour have lost at all. Uh, they're becoming cemented in the Tories' electoral coalition, whilst at the same time, the new core vote of the Labour Party, which is disproportionately younger people who rent in precarious and insecure jobs, their reasons for feeling inspired by the Labour Party are being trashed. You know, there is no clear, coherent inspiring vision that's speaking to them. And I think the other problem is, you know, Keir Starmer stood on those 10 pledges to safeguard the core domestic policies of the Corbyn era. They haven't spoken about them or they've just violated them as they did by opposing the Tories, increasing corporation tax, quite literally from the right of the Conservatives. And that just looks shifty and dishonest. Uh, and I think what's cutting through, and it is cutting through in places like Hartlepool, is these guys don't believe in anything. They're not authentic, uh, whilst the Tories have a, a vision and they're turning on the taps. And that's why Labour are failing. They have no clear vision. They don't know what they want with power. And do you know how they're going to respond after this? The only way they know how to respond, punching left. Simon Fletcher, who is the former Chief of Staff to Corbyn, who was taken on by Keir Starmer's team during the leadership election to try and uh, assuage the left, He's leaving the operation. Uh, the operation will move to the right, I think, quite self-evidently. They may do a reshuffle, which which brings in people from the right, uh, and they will uh, they they will you know they they will try and impose a narrative that a lot of their outriders and a lot of the media will uh, cement, which is in violation of the facts uh, that this is somehow on the left, and they're not uh, they're not defining themselves against the ideas and policies of the left sufficiently. And the problem is they don't have, an, you know, their cupboard is empty. It's, there's nothing in their intellectual cupboard. There is no project for European social democracy of their political iteration that is relevant to the crisis we live in, unlike the 1990s, a period, period of financialized growth and rising living standards. They don't have the answer to it. Uh, and I think what we'll see in 29, in, after this election, is them doubling down, shifting to the right, um, and trying to define themselves against the left even further. And it will not work, but it won't stop them from doing it. We don't have Keir Starmer here to defend himself. I'd love him to come on the show. He's obviously not particularly interested in doing that. Now let's take a look at Keir Starmer having another crack at the vision thing. Here he is in conversation with Kathy Newman on Channel 4 News. 
Would a Prime Minister Starmer be as radical as the US President Joe Biden with his four and a half trillion dollar plan? Let me tell you what I would do. I would fix the economy. What we've had over the last 10 years, an economy which is short term, and that has led to low pay, low standards, low investment, low productivity. Um, and the model is broken. Inequality is baked in, and that is morally wrong, and it's economically stupid. I would also have the ambition to go beyond the economy. Public services uh, need to be looked at. We need a preventative set of public services, and we need public services that cut across uh, each other. I've, I've seen so many examples in my time of people coming through the criminal justice system who, for a bit of intervention and support, would never have been there, and their victims would never have been victims. But we also need the ambition to change the culture, because for the last 10 years, whether it's in America, uh, whether it's in the UK or across Europe, we have had this utter focus on what divides us. But am I up for the radical change that's needed to make our economy work better for everybody? You bet I am. Part of that was just sort of Keir Starmer cringe, and, it, and it's, it's, it's down to him being a bit of a technocratic politician. One thing I did think watching that, though, is that, I mean, it is harder to express a vision as Labour leader now that they're facing a politician as, as wily as Boris Johnson, because Keir Starmer there, I mean, some of the lines he was taking weren't that far away from what Keir Starmer was saying. He's saying we've suffered from low investment, we've suffered from inequality. And the problem is that now Boris Johnson, or the problem for Labour, is that Boris Johnson is now talking about investment and, and inequality, then goes to talk about culture and, you know, we want to bring people together because society is so divided. Now, that was something Jeremy Corbyn said, but now... I mean, now that Brexit's in the past, it doesn't make that much sense. Keir Starmer has to point to America where Donald Trump is at. You know, it, it's kind of a critique of an opposition that isn't there. At the same time, though, I don't necessarily know if the left have their their vision of who the opposition are. I mean, what should Keir Starmer be saying? Yeah, I mean, Boris Johnson is an extremely wily uh, uh, politician who... You know, he he succeeded partly because he's not seen as a t another Tory, even though you'd think from our perspective he embodies Toryism. I, I mean, I think just quick just to see where they should get to, where they've got wrong, I think sums it up because um, back in February they did this big keynote speech, Keir Starmer, which was supposed to be the 21st century vision for the Labour Party, which was partly as fine as far as it went. It was a diagnosis of inequality, but it was going back to the whole under Miliband bless him, you know, th that whole project was often diagnosing what was wrong, cost of living crisis, promise of Britain, where the next generation have a better life than their parents, squeezed middle, they kept jumping from analysis to analysis without a policy. Their one signature policy they came up with was the British recovery bond, which has never been heard of since. And that, I think, sums it up. They're looking desperately around for a vision, anything, any sort of vision, um, and and they're not, you would then, what you do is you stick to that vision, you hammer away at it relentlessly, and they're not doing that. And I think they'll get stuck in a cycle of relaunches, stagnating polls, relaunches. They'll brief to the press. Another, Keir Starmer's resetting his leadership with a new speech. You're going to hear a lot of that. And I think the other problem is this whole Tory sleaze approach, uh, attack line, I think, is, I think is very misguided in lots of ways. I think part of it is trying to hark back to the 1990s because a lot of them saw that worked for New Labour quite well. A lot of that was to do with sex, by the way. I mean, there was the Neil Hamilton stuff where it was about, you know, dodgy envelopes. But a lot of that was the Tories launched a Back to Basics campaign of morality to return to the Victorian age. 
and then lots of Tory ministers were clearly having sex with anything that moved. So that that was why sleaze stuck because sleaze is often associated with sexual issues, isn't it? And um, I think the problem with their line of attack this time round is people are very cynical about politicians. We already know that, all the polling... I mean, politicians are less trusted than advertising executives, according to the polling. And I think the danger is with this attack line is it feeds into a sense that all politicians are on the take, they're in it for themselves, they've got their snouts in the trough. That's what you hear over and over and over again, repeated verbatim by voters. But actually, that's just seen as spread around. That's what all politicians are like. And the more people think that, the more it actually often hurts the left. Because if you think all politicians are corrupt and in it for themselves, you don't trust them to come up with grand national projects of social reform, or, or you're less likely to. And what they should have done is stuck to an anti-elite framing. PPE contracts is about, uh, for example, being handed out to their mates. It's about an elite that looks after themselves. Uh, the fact that, you know, tests and trace failed. Again, an elite that looks after themselves, handed to their private sector mates who made a an absolute pig's ear of the whole thing, not locking down quick enough was because, again, they feared it would hit the profits of business. Human life was less important. And Labour should have done what they did under Attlee with World War II, which is to go look at what this national tragedy has done. We clapped from windows for the key workers who have been undervalued and underpaid for so long, and now we're going to give them the wages and terms and conditions, the millions of them, that they deserve. And instead, we have Keir Starmer on national television who can't even commit to anything more than a 2.5% pay rise for nurses. That the self-employed, the millions of self-employed and precarious uh, uh, workers in this country, again, with, they've been exposed one pay packet away from insecurity. That will change. Universal credit, which millions of people have been sucked into the orbit of, inadequate. We need to build a new welfare state, which is actually suits the needs of the times. And the polling has shown that people's attitudes towards the welfare state has completely and utterly changed. That we've seen from how test and trace failed, private sector mess, unlike the vaccine rollout, public sector NHS rollout, that shows public ownership works. So we're going to go down that avenue. They could have knitted that together. We're going to stand up against an elite that looks after their own by redistributing wealth and power and curing the injustices that were exposed and exacerbated by the national emergency that worked in 1945. They beat bloody Winston Churchill, the wartime leader, in a landslide. It's not the same, obviously, but there are some similarities but they didn't do that. They were too scared to pin responsibility for the pandemic on the government. They let them get away with it. And now they're going down a line of politicians were all dodgy. That's rebounded on them. They've got the various new Labour ghosts of Christmas past associated with them. And people just go, well, you've got that problem as well. And they're not coming up with that coherent, inspiring vision. Instead, they're jumping from message to message to message, throwing occasional policy into the ether, forgetting about it. It never cuts through. It never sticks if you do that. Um, and that's their fight. That's their failure. That's their problem. And if they stuck to that clear vision, I think it would cut through. But they don't have a vision they have any confidence in. So all they'll do after this is carry on down the line of I'm not Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson, but they won't define who he actually is instead or the leadership. They're looking at continued stagnation and decline. This is not going to end well by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and I think I'm afraid to say all too many of them, this whole political project of Keir Starmer seems to have been founded on a fraud because it was a case of people who voted for Liz Kendall or campaigned for her back in 2015, the Blairite candidate in 2015, signing up to a soft left agenda because they thought that was the sweet spot of the Labour membership 
in 2020. And I don't think they believed it. I don't think they believed it one bit. And now they're going to just throw all of that overboard and go the way of the European sister parties, which I'm afraid to say are in a far worse state than Labour Party ended even in 2019. I really like that you brought up that reset speech because the one good part of that speech I thought was him sort of saying, or Keir Starmer saying, the reason the pandemic was so bad was because we have these gutted public services, et cetera, et cetera. I thought that was a good angle to go down. But since then, Keir Starmer hasn't said it again. He just says, oh, sorry, the reason I'm not doing that well is actually because the Tories are brilliant at coronavirus. <laughs> it's not like, that's, not, that's, not, that's not the message you're supposed to be getting across. Um, anyway, Owen, it has been such a pleasure having you on tonight. Owen, um, thanks so much for that. Good night. Um, right, let's move straight on to Scotland. Elections to the Scottish Parliament will be the most consequential round of votes anywhere in the UK on Thursday. That's because they've been set up by all sides as a barometer for the legitimacy of a second referendum on Scottish independence. The SNP are aiming for an absolute majority to then push for a second indie vote. It's therefore unsurprising that the final leaders debate on BBC Scotland was dominated by questions about a so-called Indie Ref 2. This is what the SNP's Nicola Sturgeon, Labour's Anna Sawa and the Tories' Douglas Ross had to say on the issue. Our manifesto is very clear. We want the next five years to focus on the national recovery. But just on that point about the recovery, Nicola Sturgeon has led us through the pandemic and people can make the case about whether she's done that well or not. But you can't lead uh, the recovery and also lead half the country at the same time. You either lead all the country and take us to the recovery, not half the country. You can't lead a referendum campaign and lead the recovery at the same oh. time. It's simply not credible. They should vote for me uh, on Thursday, <laughs> safe in the knowledge that getting us through this crisis is my priority. And then you and claim their well, vote as part of the mandate for like, India when, when we come out of this crisis, recovery and what we recover to is not some kind of abstract neutral concept. We've got to decide ourselves, what kind of country do we want to be? What are the values we want to underpin that recovery? Um, and what do we want the recovery to look like? Do okay. we want it one built in the image of Boris Johnson and Douglas Ross and their I mean, band uh, of Brexiteers? Sorry, well, or do we want it to be one that put fairness and equality and building a prosperous Scotland? Okay. If she gets a majority, she'll take her eye off the ball for Scotland's recovery, for rebuilding this country from this pandemic and seek to hold another independence referendum. She will ask for a Section ah, 30 order. Seek to hold is not the same as guaranteeing that it will happen. And I'm just going to come on to it. She'll seek a Section 30 order, which the Prime Minister has said is absolutely the wrong thing to do right now in the middle of this global pandemic to seek to divide the country all over again. And then he would then say, absolutely, the priority has to be a recovery. And Nicola Sturgeon would say, well, we'll go ahead with an illegal wildcat referendum anyway. Now, despite what Douglas Ross said there, Sturgeon has in fact ruled out an illegal referendum um, a la Catalonia. So why did Douglas Ross bring it up? Well, it's likely he was trying to cover for this tweet from the Scottish Conservatives, which caused a stir on Monday. And so the Scottish Conservatives tweeted, an SNP majority is a guarantee of another independence referendum. The reason this raised eyebrows is because the Tories have been fairly insistent that even if the SNP win a majority, they will not get another independence referendum because it's within um, Boris Johnson's power to give them permission to. And he's made it very clear that whatever the result of this election, the Tories have no intention of um, conceding that a referendum can happen. Um, that means that Douglas Ross now has to suggest that what they actually meant was, oh, there will definitely be another independence referendum because Nicola Sturgeon will do an illegal one. I'm joined now by writer and campaigner Katie Gilliglay-Swan. First of all, 
um, on on the big picture. Is it correct to understand these elections as essentially a referendum on a referendum? So a referendum on whether there should be another independence referendum? I mean, I think that considering the recent of, of the past few years, constitutional uh, disruptions, I think that that was always going to be a part of this election. But of course, you've also got the parties determined to to pose this also as a as an election on on economic recovery and, and recovery more generally from the pandemic. I think that Nicola Sturgeon is is walking a very fine line because you know in asking for uh, a majority based on her capacity to sort of be an experienced manager of the country and to you know deliver deliver a recovery. But if they get a majority, then you do get the referendum. You know, that seems to be saying two things. But on the other hand, you know, you've got the Conservatives pushing their one trick, which is be afraid, be very afraid of another referendum. And that works for them. That ha- that returns a solid sort of quarter of the vote. But but it's wearing very thin. And, and you know, Douglas Ross is, is no Ruth Davidson. Douglas Ross is definitely no Ruth Davidson. It seems like his campaign is completely tanking, um, which brings second place into play. We'll talk about that in one moment. First of all, I want to go to the poll. And this is a poll aggregator um, from the New Statesman, which they've used to project um, an estimate for what they think could be the seat share um, when we come out of this election. So they have the SNP on, in fact, exactly the same um, number of seats they they currently have, which is 63, and um, which is too short of a majority. Um, whatever happens, though, there will be a majority for independence because you can have the SNP supported by the Greens. And my question for you, one thing that's, I suppose, been confusing me slightly um, in this election is why have the SNP basically allowed a narrative to form whereby an indie ref too is legitimate if they get a majority when actually to have a majority for an indie ref two, the SNP don't need to get a majority. It's definitely going to be the case that either the SNP get an absolute majority or there is a pro indie majority because of the Greens. So, so why have they made it so, so binary? Either we get a, either we get an absolute majority and we have an indie ref two or we don't. And then potentially we don't. Why has that happened? I'd say there's there's a few different reasons. The first one is just in terms of external legitimacy and credibility. Nicola Sturgeon is now, you know, an international figure in her own right. Um, and there is a reality that Downing Street are much more likely to 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 sideline the Greens if indeed they are holding that that balance of a pro indie majority within the parliament. Um, so there's that sort of external, you know, PR international recognition that I think is is a part of the SNP's game. Um, or our consideration of this. Another is the historic precedent. You know, they didn't get uh, the the sort of majority that they needed in the last election. Um, and in 2011, they did get that majority, which was why David Cameron, part of the reason why David Cameron granted the, the referendum. Um, and then finally, I think it's, you know, they are in an election. They need to mobilise their base and mobilising their base is you know, both votes SNP, we need to bring back as many SNP MSPs as possible. Um, and the Greens have played a, a, a really good role in the last uh, the last parliament in pushing the SNP to be, you know, for, for progressive concessions in order to pass SNP budgets. And, and that sort of uh, compromise on the, the, their power within the parliament, I think, is something that they would be keen to avoid. Finally, when it comes to who's second place, 
Um, I mean, especially in England, lots of people are interested in in how Labour are, uh, are going to do, um, because people see that a sort of recovery in Scotland is necessary if they want to get back into government. The polling currently has the Tories still in second, but Labour making ground. And Asawa, he's had quite a good campaign. Is that is that the case? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think Anna Sardwar's uh, credibility has definitely increased. His likability has increased uh, as this um, election campaign has continued. And I think that, you know, while he sometimes does stray along the line of being a wee bit more teachery and the sort of calm down guys, don't don't argue like this in the in the debates, I think he has done a really good job in balancing the sort of recognition of the respect of the democratic principle, but his own clarity of what his position is, which is he doesn't support a referendum. On the other hand, you know, I think that the road for recovery for Scottish Labour is going to be very long. The the vast losses that they had in the, the heartlands of, of Scottish Labour, you know, are not going to recover overnight. The way that, you know, Scottish politics has worked since the 70s is that there's a predominant party. It was Labour. You know, Labour could be depended on uh, to bring back that majority, no matter really what folks were saying. And now that's SNP. And that took quite a few decades for the SNP to get into that position. So I think a Labour resurgence isn't on the cards. But I think, you know, I'd say that Sarwar has performed much better than I was anticipating as Labour anyway, in the short space of time that he's he's been in that position. Katie Gidaglias-Swan, thank you so much for, for joining us this evening for that preview um, of, the, of the Scottish elections. No worries. Cheers, Michael. Cheers. Um, of course, we will be covering um, those results in depth because it will be very, very consequential, not just for Scotland, but for the whole of the UK. The final um, election we're going to bring you up to date with very briefly, as I said, we're not going to go into too much detail in terms of the Welsh Parliament. We'll get a guest on um, either on Friday or Monday. Um, the polling here has Labour ahead, um, expected really by all parties to be able to form a minority government. They currently um, have a minority government. They're expected um, to lose a few seats, but not many. Um, let's bring up the latest polling. So on the constituency vote, Labour on 36, the Tories on 29, um, and the and Plaid Cymru on 20. And then on the party list vote, 31 for, for Labour, 31%, 25% for the Tories, and 21% for Plaid Cymru. And then when you see the seats, um, Labour on 20. The Conservatives on 17 and Plaid on 14. Uh, we expect a Labour minority government, but we'll, we'll talk about the, the nuances and the intricacies um, about that when the results come. To close the show, Dahlia, I'm going to put you on the spot and I want a, a brief answer to something you haven't prepared for because it's breaking news, which could be incredibly significant. The US has announced support for COVID-19 vaccine patent waiver. I mean, I've just read that tweet. I haven't read the, the the detail, but that could be incredibly significant, couldn't it? Oh, wow. I mean, that's incredible news. I think it's very difficult to get people to care about intellectual property, to get people to care about those things that are snuck in to, to trade agreements um, that actually feel, they feel like very technical minor things, but they are incredible, have a massive, massive impact and, and play a massive role in the, in essentially like the neo-colonial unequal distribution of resources throughout the world. Um, and I think that there has been a really, really great campaign uh, across the world, so which, you know, is getting using this kind of like, use, using the lens of the vaccine in this kind of very under easy to understand example of why these kinds of um, patents are so unfair and entrench so much global inequality. 
Um, and, you know, that campaign has, has been really effective and it might even be successful. This is really, really important and lays a lot of groundwork for, for the fact that, you know, in the fight against climate change, a lot of, and to not, not to make it seem like it's too, but these things are all connected, but intellectual property agreements and things like this are massive stumbling blocks to actually solving the climate crisis. So this is, you know, really important for the vaccine, but it also could have like really, really empowering effects uh, down the line. So well done to those campaigns. That's really, really good news. Mm, and well, also said, a I mean, double whammy negativity for Bill Gates, divorced and got his, you know, <laughs> decided his, his like disgusting vaccine protectionism um, a bit of a knock, you know, it's not done yet, but it is a significant knock, obviously, because the US has been a really important proponent and supporter of this, these kinds of mechanisms. I hadn't thought of that Bill Gates angle. That's a very <laughs> good point. Probably something we'll talk about on Friday's show. Dahlia, it's been an absolute pleasure being joined by you this Wednesday. That's it for us for now. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.